It is uh, September 6, 2017. Tonight's message is called Wits End and Precarious Positioning. Uh, returning to Houston, uh, finding what Hurricane Harvey did to the city, the toll that it's taken has left my heart both saddened and strangely encouraged. It's very odd to be on the other side of the world while your family uh, is having the kind of pictures broadcast in the news media. I first heard what was happening here from people in Turkey, and I was in Indonesia. They just got the news first. And Muslims who are now God-seeking on the edge of Christianity, we'll call them proto-Christians, were concerned for you. They were calling me to find out how you were doing. The news was, of course, saddening because of the tremendous destruction and the loss of life that occurred. I was encouraged, though, because as I watched life-changing ministries put into practice, the very things that we have, they actually were performing. You were performing out there the things that we have practiced in here. This is the reason that we founded this church, was to be a light to the world. And that light shines the most brightly during difficult times. Something is wrong with the church that has decided that it is our job, our calling, to escape difficulty. Our calling is actually to stand in the midst of difficulty and show people God's purposes through it. It's for that reason that I wanted to read to you some encouraging things. What Paul said to the Corinthian church is true of you. How many of you have known me longer than 10 years? You know that I'm not the kind of guy that hands out praise for no reason. You're more likely to get rebuked by me than you are encouraged. And I really don't see the difference between the two. I have never set out to see how many Facebook friends I could find. So when I give you this, I want you to know that it's born of the Spirit. And it's true of nearly every soul in here. 2 Corinthians 9.12 could have been written to you. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. Somebody say prove. prove. I believe in a Christianity that can be proven. It is proven in one's deeds. It is proven in a way that leaves the skeptic with no room for doubt. He may decide to deny, but it is a decision. Not because there's just doubt. He has seen in you something. Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Somebody say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. When the grace of God is on you in a way that there is obedience that accompanies your confession, then we have found real salvation. All too often there is a confession, but there is no obedience. Sometimes there's humanitarian work, but no confession. In this congregation, we are finding both a confession and obedience to the gospel of Christ. And for your generosity and sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. It is an indescribable gift that you who were enemies of God Almighty... You who were objects of His wrath 
have now been found to be objects of his mercy and you are extending the mercy that was given you into the lives of other people. Real Christianity always affects the world that is around us. And all that is happening with the terrible devastation and the difficulty is God is setting the stage for a target-rich environment. Friends, a long time before floodwaters began to rise, souls were dying and going to hell. We just notice when they're soggy and wet. I'm proud that you are taking notice of the people that are around you, that you are reaching out in every way. It would be a strange thing to go to the corners of the world for the gospel and ignore the corners of our hometown. But you have not done it. In fact, Peter further describes what is happening to your faith in this passage, it is 1 Peter 1, 6. Say there when you were there. It's a good looking shirt, DJ. Man, babies happened everywhere while I was gone. Saw little Yusef earlier and I wanted to yell, make way, Zaphonoth Panea. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved. Somebody say proved. Proved, proved genuine. And may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You know, in these last few months, in these last few years, I've traveled a little bit. In fact, in the last five years... I've been to 31 countries. I've slept outside of the country more than one in one half years. I've made hundreds of international trips. I've had the opportunity to preach the gospel and display the gospel of our glorious king in a bunch of places. But I've never seen a body of believers that I thought displayed the attributes of Christ any more than the folks in this room. There was a time I couldn't say that. In fact, those of you that have been here for a long time, remember that every time I came back from India, it was six months of scolding for you. I told you how men and women that had never worn shoes surpassed your faith every day, even though they could barely read. I told you stories of women that were beaten for the glory of Christ and yet did not miss services. I'm proud to say that as I re-entered the United States this time, I looked forward to nothing more than being strengthened by the congregation that has become family. What Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.16 about Timothy reminding them of his way of life, you have embraced a way of life. There are churches that right now have become helipad landing centers. They're stacking materials all over the place. They're organizing the weekend warriors to go out and solve the world's problems by handing out cleaning detergents. I'm thankful for what they're doing. Somebody has to do it. It could be them or the Mormons. It makes no difference. I'm glad someone is doing it. But the church of Jesus Christ is not called to action on a weekend to hand out Tide soap. This is a way of life for us 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The hurricane only shows the rest of the world what we're doing every day. We received calls from around the world, other pastors that wanted to help and praise God for them. I, I, I am thrilled to death. But for them, it's an event that you organize. And for us, it's a daily life. We didn't do anything different. Yeah. 
And we won't do anything different next week. This is who we are because it's who Christ is. I am so proud of you for knowing your high identity in Christ. This allows us to endure any obstacle and see it as a precious thing. Oh, church, around the world, God is raising up saints just like you. Around the world, the victorious faith that I saw in the missionaries in Indonesia, the distance that the Vincents have traveled since our last visit is incredible. The way that God is preparing the end times clash between the rise of the Antichrist in the Middle East and the sons of God being planted in the heart of the beast is extraordinary. There are so many things that I want to share with you. As I sat with the pastors and I heard how they had encouraged you to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth and how you have risen to the standard that they display. I couldn't do anything but smile. I heard that the Resoras hosted Rob and Gammy and Justin and Abimbola. I heard that the Hewitts had the Fowlers there, Cody and Andrew, which is something because, Nolan, I know how much those boys eat. They grew up in my house. Had to get a full-time job just to feed half of one of them. I realized that the Browns Took in a family and a new baby. In addition to what they had, the Piros did the same and the Sutherlands did the same. Hearing that the families of the church had been cooking meals for each other. Hearing that the outreach to the neighborhood that the Arias had to be evacuated from established new relationships for the gospel. That it wasn't social justice. It was about the justice of our God with a little social compassion. Hearing that Nob Hill outreached to Jews and Muslims and, praise God, backslidden Christians too was a great success. All I could say was Jesus Christ was proud of you. And I am too. You don't hear that from me all of that much because I believe a good, firm kick in the butt is often a great step forward. I think that all too often we pat ourselves on the back when the job is not done. But I wanted to tell Life Changing Ministries this morning Good job. Before I get into the subject matter of tonight's message, I wanted to take one more opportunity to remind you about the one association meeting that is coming up. It's October 5th, 6th, 7th, and we're going to stay over Sunday on the 8th. I'm asking you to come. I'm asking you to take off work. I'm asking you to do whatever it takes. If you have an obstacle that is in your way, and you feel like you can't get there, come share the obstacle with me and let's see if we can watch God kick it down together. I'm jealous for you. I want to show you off as a model to the other believers. I want to talk to those that would see the kingdom as a series of promotional events about the way of life that you have learned and encourage them to imitate you because the world will be better for it. Sunday, I probably will get into Turkey and Indonesia and the victorious faith of the Vincent family. Tonight, I couldn't help but want to address what is happening in our own backyard. Is that fair? Even if it's not fair, it is what we are going to do. I tell you, driving in Turkey was kind of an interesting thing. Indonesia was even more fun. 
One American on a moped is more than a match for four or five buses in Indonesia. <laughs> These cultures are a little more passive than we are. They're more inclined to hit the brakes than the gas. And for that reason, you can be a little bit awkward as an American. Well, to start with, in Indonesia, you're... Where are you at, Larissa? Are you in here? No, kids' church. <clears throat> well... You're a foot and a half taller than the average guy on the street. The Vincents remarked that they knew God was wondrous in all of his ways, that he sent them to a country that even they could become towering giants. And then in his great humor, he matched them with one Indonesian who happens to be taller than them all. <coughs> this morning... Or this evening, you have to forgive me, I am a little jet-lagged and I know nothing of what it would be like to have had several beers, but if I did know what that was like, it must feel like this. I wanted to talk to you about what it means to come to your wit's end. Whether we are in a precarious position or a precious position. So many have such simplistic views regarding hurricanes. I googled hurricanes and God's working while I was sitting waiting to start this message, I found doctors with PhDs bloviating about their concerns. It was incredible to see the kind of things that were written. And as you look at the scripture, these people, their theories range from philosophical to heretical, but most fail to acknowledge how big our king is, how complex his workings are. I wanted to start our discussion in Job 40. It feels like a good place to start. And the pastor in me wants to stray already from the message because there's a couple things in here that I can feel that I want to deal with. If you are discouraged, not because of a flood, but because the pace at which God is moving in your life, I want to tell you, repent of your discouragement. Ask the Lord right now to help you. Because he desires to strengthen those who have put their trust in him. If you are finding it hard to hold your chin up and smile victoriously, not because of pictures you're seeing on the news, but because God seems to move more quickly in every other life other than yours, perhaps he's put you where you are at so that he can gain glory through you by what you overcome in his name. Tonight, Let's take a fresh look at this and shake off the things that are warring against your faith. I care for you deeply. And when we get together and pray, I can pick out immediately what you are struggling with. That's because he made me to be a pastor. And tonight, for a few of you, discouragement is trying to wrap its coils around your neck and tell you that God is working on everybody's behalf but yours. It's not true. It's never been true. He brought you to this place tonight that you might be encouraged about the position that you now stand in. We're not going to look at it and see ourselves as victims. We're not going to look at it and be discouraged. We're going to rejoice in the high calling of God that is ours. Somebody say amen. amen. While we're in Job 40, the very first part of verse 6 says something that is beautiful. Hey, would y'all like to see something funny? I got to Indonesia and realized I couldn't read my Bible anymore. 
and Brent had a pair of reading glasses. The problem is, I can either see my Bible or see you. I cannot see both at the same time. So I'm going to, in faith, read here. If I miss a word, somebody holler out to help me. Amen? Amen. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Where did God speak to Job from? Brace yourself like a man. Man, he said that even in the ancient days before they were metrosexual, skinny jean, latte drinking pansies. We're playing this game in every country I go to called man or woman. And in every country we can't tell. And it's not because the gay and lesbian lobby has gotten there. It's because American fashions have gotten there. By the way, while I'm on the gay and lesbian lobby, I couldn't help but notice I didn't see any gay and lesbian lobbyists out wading through floodwaters to help relief victims. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are gay and lesbian people that are helping their neighbors, just like there are Mormons that are helping their neighbors. But the organized coalition that wants to sue you if you don't make a wedding cake for two men is not help outside helping their fellow man right now. It's during these times that we get to see clear-cut distinctions between rhetoric and action. And I praise God for them. Where did God speak to Job out of? The storm. The storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? I can't help but picture God speaking to him from the storm in the Atlas position. Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. And clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Can you hear God's voice dripping with sarcasm? One of the first questions that we have to come to is, will we discredit God's justice in order to justify ourselves? So often we look at a story in the Bible. Let's take Achan being stoned, for instance. And we immediately see that his family was stoned. And our heart grieves for them. We're hurt. And the very first thought that you have is a picture of Achan with his little children being stoned and they were innocent and they didn't do anything. Of course, the scripture doesn't say they were innocent. It doesn't say that they were little children. That's just how we picture it. They might have been in their 40s or 50s. They might have helped Achan conceal and bury. There are so many things there that we don't know, but our hearts and our minds are quick to charge God with error and justify ourselves. And you love Him. So how much more? The wicked. When we see a natural disaster, people say, how could God let this happen? The same way that He let the gay parade happen. And uh, Kim Jong-un threatened the world with, you know, nuclear war and every 
other thing that he allows to happen. How about we look a little deeper and see if God is speaking a message through what is happening. See, when we get our eyes on us being the judge and judging God for what he does and does not do, it blinds us to the greater truth that God is speaking a message. Are you open to hear that message this evening? If God spoke to Job from a storm, he may still be able to speak to people through a storm. As we move into the next scripture, I can't help but be reminded of the overriding purpose of the book of Job. More sermons have been preached in error from Job than maybe any book besides Ecclesiastes. The point of Job is that God has the right to bring into your life whatever will bring Him glory for His name as you endure it for the greatness of His kingdom. That's the whole point. Job ends up better off. Job ends up more prosperous. Job ends up with children that honor Him and honor the Lord. Job ends up blessed in every way. But he had to fight through a lot to get there, including correction. There is a message in this for the believer. Every bit of suffering that you experience is for your refinement. It's for your good. Every bit of adversity is shaping you. Nothing comes into your life except what your benevolent, loving Father desires to come into your life for your benefit. When we miss that message, it's because we have discredited God's justice to justify ourselves. Let's be honest. Does He owe you your next breath? Then how dare we complain that we got a little wet, or our houses got a little wet, or our cars got flooded, or any other thing that has happened. In fact, what if your attachment to those things is an offense to God? Listen, if you spent time grieving over a lazy boy you lost, you might love your lazy boy too much. Yeah? All I have is yours, Lord. Well, how do you react when you lose it? Was it really his? It's a much easier thing to say you'll sacrifice Isaac on the mountain than to raise the knife above his head. I've noticed that Americans are very fond at speaking the truths of the gospel, but very slow to actually do them. Turn with me to Proverbs 10. <laughs> Say there when you find Proverbs 10, 25. You know, how many of you remember the movie Back to the Future? We took off in Tokyo at 11.15 on Tuesday. We landed in Houston at 9.15 on Tuesday. Think about that for a minute. And that was with a 19-hour layover in Tokyo. We actually went back in time without a flux capacitor <laughs> or Michael J. Fox. In Proverbs 10:25, we see a verse that has been a great encouragement to some, but it's been a scourge to the backs of others. When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone. But the righteous stand firm forever. Can you see why that's encouraging to some? And to others it feels like you're being beaten with a whip? What are you to infer from a verse like this? Should the righteous expect to go untouched? Do only the wicked suffer in a storm? How about the blind man? His sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be that way? 
Sometimes Christians have a way of choosing between only two options, unaware that there's a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth option that God is able to do in people's lives. I want to not just separate out the idea that floods happen to bad people. How many of you know people that love the Lord that lost things? But can I tell you, if you really love the Lord, you can't lose anything. I mean, everything that you have can be swept away in a moment, but if you stand, you have everything you need. The man who's filled with the Holy Ghost has everything he needs every time he takes breath. The man who's not filled with the Holy Ghost, no matter how much he has, he falls woefully short of what he needs. I don't want to debate with you about what Proverbs 10.25 means tonight. Instead, I want to tell you that God is able to accomplish more than one thing with a flood. And everything that he accomplishes is very good. Moving into the law, we will begin to hit the meat of our subject. Let's start in Exodus 19. <clears throat> Say there when you were there. Most of the time you would think it's a bad thing if you're in a foreign country and armed soldiers stop you and pull your passport. Particularly if the Syrian border is less than 100 yards to your right and 200 yards ahead of you is the Iraqi border. But if they end up smoking cigars with you, sitting, listening to praise and worship music, trying to learn the songs, and want to take pictures with you to put on their Facebook when it's over, then maybe it wasn't such a bad thing. But you don't know when you come to that roadblock and they take your passports how that's going to end. You know, a storm that produces something good in someone's life is a good storm. A storm that produces something bad in someone's life, you can call it bad unless it just failed to meet its objective. In Exodus 19, notice the way that God speaks to Moses. Are you in the ninth verse? Exodus 19 and verse 9. The Lord said to Moshe, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Skip on over to verse 16 with me. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountains and a very large trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Apparently God and Moses did not get together at a seeker-sensitive movement about what would make people the most comfortable in the presence of God. How did God choose to speak to Moses? It was out of a storm-like environment. And there's a reason for that. God used the condition of the storm-like environment to get people's attention. They heard God's voice in the midst of their trouble. The truth is they were terrified. And in their fear, they had nowhere to turn but to the Lord. How many people do you know prayed that the floodwaters would not enter their house and they haven't prayed this, this year for any other thing? They heard God's voice in the midst of their trouble. 
You know what else they did at the mountain? They took stock of something very important. They noticed that Moses was in the exact same position they were. Even in a more precarious situation, he was on the mountain that was trembling. On the mountain that was blazing with fire. Right there with the trumpet voice was so loud that the people were terrified. He was in the center of it. And you know what they saw? They saw he was right with God. And it made them concerned about their own position. In fact, it's from this that they said, you know what? Maybe, Moses, since you heard from God and didn't die, and we're not so sure about us, maybe you'll continue to hear from God for us. Sometimes God allows storms like this so that others can see when you're in the same situation that they are in, there is a difference between your trust in the Lord and theirs. This causes them to inquire about your life. And if you've listened to Peter, you stand ready to speak to their concern. In other words, God is setting the stage for you by the conditions that you share with lost people. Has anybody in here heard of Charles Finney? Most people consider Charles Finney one of the greatest American evangelists that have ever been. Finney, in his lectures on revival, often spoke of the way that God had prepared the town before he got there. In fact, he said people have given him too much credit. What they didn't know is in a town of 32,000 people, 12,000 people had died of cholera the month before he got there. So God knew how to till the soil of the people's hearts. If you want a great Savior, you need to be saved from something that is great. If you want Jesus to stand heads and, tall, heads and tails taller than every other thing, then the people have to need him more than every other thing. Our great problem in this country is our great lack of need for God. We wonder what his purpose could be in all of this. I actually wonder what his purpose could be in all the affluence that we've been allowed. Because my observation, quite honestly, is that Americans are the rudest people on the planet. I know that's not nice to say, and maybe you don't want to hear it, but I challenge you to go to a few countries with me and then walk into Bush Intercontinental Airport and listen to the TSA agents. It is shockingly reviling. Something has happened in the great blessing that has come upon us. We have forgotten what it is to be in a humble, low, and contrite position. And it might be that God speaks best to us out of a storm when we're reminded how big He is, how big the world is, and how small your footprint in it really is. And it's hard to do that with people that have every kind of insurance that you can have. It's hard to do that with people that have so insulated themselves from need that they no longer hear God's voice and will accept clowns preaching the gospel that is no gospel at all for greed and for money. It might be that the best thing that could happen to us is difficulty because it tunes our ear towards His command. Why do you think He spoke to Job out of a storm? Why do you think He spoke to His people in the greatest revelation the world has ever seen, the theophany at Sinai? 
He spoke to them out of a storm. I want to ask you, church, are you beginning to hear what he is speaking? In the prophets, we can see Isaiah is pointing us towards a future fulfillment where storms will no longer be a necessary tool. But it seems that we may not be there yet. Justin, would you stand up for a minute? Let's see. Gabrielle, would you stand up for a minute? Olivia Clement, would you stand up for a minute? You in here? Oh, Brianna, you stand up for a minute. Come on, girl, get on your feet. Mandy, would you stand up for a minute? Olivia Sutherland, would you stand up? Patricia, would you stand up for a minute? I think this will probably suffice. Justin, come on down here, man. Turn to Isaiah 4 while Justin's walking this way. You're in a good spot right there, Justin. Your hair grew out while I was gone, man. You, you, putting, that, you putting that stuff in it, huh? No? Linton is, no, no. He's one of those guys I miss while I'm not here. Girls, are y'all all uncomfortable standing? There is a deep theological point, Patricia, coming. You ready? How do we know that God still uses storms to speak to us and that that time has not passed? In Isaiah 4, verse 1, in that day, somebody say that day. day. Has Pastor Wade been talking to you on Monday nights about that day? Zephaniah, that day. What's that day? It's the day of the Lord, right? In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, we will eat our own food and we'll provide our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. You ladies, y'all willing to grab hold of Linton right now and say, look, we'll feed ourselves, we'll clothe ourselves. Just give us your last name, Justin. Give it to us. Justin, it seems we hadn't hit that day yet. Y'all can sit down. I think you've proven the point. There, there can be all of the... Um, dispensational arguments you would like to make but until we see seven women grabbing one man and begging for his last name then we might have to consider that what we're about to read has not yet come upon us only let us be called by your name and take away our disgrace in that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the, what's that next word? Storm Storm and rain. There is a day when the presence of God will so envelop you, or in this passage, the kavod of God. That could be a name for a product that's going to be marketed in the Middle East that will give us the opportunity to preach the gospel to those who do not yet know it. 
while flying under the radar of the most militant Islam the world's ever seen rising there. More to come on that Sunday. But right now, the point being, we have not yet reached the day where the presence of God so surrounds you that you don't feel the effects of a storm. Instead, the presence of God can sustain you through the storm. The presence of God can lead you to help your neighbor during the storm. But we've not reached that eschatological time where you do not feel the raindrops beating on the house that is on the rock firmly planted. In fact, you still feel every bit of it. Do you know why? Because God's work is not yet accomplished on the earth. He's still accomplishing it through you. And ask yourself, if there were no plagues in Egypt, how many Egyptians would have left with the Israelites uh, in the Passover? But multitudes did. Multitudes did. Ask yourself, if there was nothing to be saved from, how many lost would join the righteous? See, great distress in great trouble provides the need for a great Savior. Who is supposed to point the way to that great Savior? Praise God for evangelism tools. Praise God for Him illustrating a need. It's always been there. We're just blind to it. But the meat of the message that I want to share with you today comes from Psalm 107. Say there when you were there. Don't give up on me. I've come a long ways to meet with you today. Have you ever had fatty tuna? It's really incredible. I ate so much fatty tuna while I was in Tokyo that they literally claimed to be sold out. I'm like, you can't be sold out, man. I've seen your fish market. You're right on the ocean. You're just tired of me eating your food. When they have an all-you-can-eat sushi bar, found out that 52 pieces is all they'll let you eat. We had a translation error. I thought all you can eat meant all I could eat. It meant all they would let me eat. But it was excellent. After a month away from home, it was, uh, it was excellent. In Psalm 107, we're going to come to four kinds of distress that the Lord saves people out of in the midst of a storm. Is that okay? In Psalm 107, let me just begin where it begins. In verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those He redeemed from the hand of the foe, those He gathered from the lands from east and west, north and south. Some wandered in the desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. When did they cry out to the Lord? In their trouble. And He delivered them from their distress. Listen, I'm going to harp on this for just a second. Preaching today that says Jesus loves you and He wants to save you is incomplete and it is impotent. What would they be saved from? When we do not illustrate to people that they are in death, they are enemies of God, they are at war with Him, and He is offering them salvation and peace if they turn 
from their extraordinary, monstrous, wicked behavior, then we're getting closer to the gospel. I want to just show you something real quick by way of four verses. Verse 6, Then they cried out to the Lord, say it with me, in their Verse 13, Then they cried out to the Lord, in their trouble. Verse 19, Then they cried out to the Lord, Verse 28, then they cried out to the Lord. In their Are you beginning to see a pattern? Let's look and see what caused their trouble. Listen, you can talk about global warming if you want. You can debate that all day long. If it makes you feel better to hug a tree and drive an electric car, I hope you'll make up for me while I drive a diesel that pollutes the whole environment and feel great while I'm doing it. Really, if that hurts your conscience, I'm sorry. It does not begin to make a dent in mine. It hurts my conscience when I see people elevate the creation above the creator. It hurts my conscience when I can't put a picture of a dog I saw in Mexico in one of the missions pictures because people will give for the dog and not go for the souls. That hurts my conscience. Eating saturated fats, too much salt, driving a diesel, doesn't hurt my conscience at all. And... I'm really pretty impervious to what you think about it, right? Notice what causes their trouble here. You ready? Verse 4. Some wandered in the desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. Was that because God didn't show them the way to the city, or was it because they refused to go in and take the land? See, sin causes trouble. I know from a scientific standpoint, we can talk about hurricanes transferring heat energy from one part of the globe to another. That it has to do with heated equatorial waters rising quickly, creating low pressure underneath and a cyclone effect. We can argue about whether the water in the bathtub spins clockwise or counterclockwise, depending on where you're at on the globe. I've just been on both sides of it. It's true, by the way. The truth is all real problems in the world today are caused because the earth has been subjected to man and man's sin. That is the whole of it. And look at God's response to man's sin here. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. What was their problem? They could find no city. They were wandering in a desert. They were hungry and they were thirsty and their lives ebbed away. So what did He do? When they cried out to Him, He brought them into a city and saved their lives. What was the purpose of the storm in their life? It drove them to cry out to God. We can lament the weather. We can be upset at difficulty. But difficulty serves the purpose of God in that it drives people who otherwise would not give Him a thought in their day to His throne. And it allows Him to meet their needs. And He might use you to do it so that they can see of His great compassion for them. Why has difficulty extended itself into your life? So that the mercy of God can extend itself 
into your life. Had you no difficulty, you would not need his mercy. We're so apt to become a victim. And the truth is, every obstacle is an opportunity for God's power. Every single one. Are you grieving tonight? Do you hurt because of something that's happened in your life? You know, when someone is truly healed by the power of God, that grief turns into something else. It turns into a victorious, powerful witness. It turns into a healing balm for other people. We can try to avoid everything that hurts, but you'll also be avoiding everything that heals. Ask God to turn the storm somewhere else. How American of us. Pick up with me in verse... Actually, there's a slide. Could you get to that first slide? We'll start to go through these. In Psalm 107, they had lost their way. They were hungry and thirsty. And God led them to a straight way in a city to settle in. You know, wandering is not straight. But he led them to a straight way. The narrow way. Watch this next one. We're going to start in verse 10. Some sat in darkness in the deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains, for they had rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. So He subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the deepest gloom and broke away their chains. Could you go to that second slide? Look at this summarized. It's beautiful. They rebelled and despised his counsel. They fell into hard labor, darkness, and chains. But he brought them out of the darkness and he broke their chains. Have you ever wondered why somebody can try cocaine once and be fine? They can hit a crack pipe once and be fine. And then one day, they can't put it down. One day, it has so overwhelmed them, they can't put it down. Have you seen that happen with alcohol? Have you seen it happen with internet gambling? Seen it happen with a pornography habit? What if the Lord is allowing you to see the results of your sin and its damaging effects so that in your distress... You can cry out to Him and He can rush in to break your chains. You know, Samson couldn't be bound, so he kept sinning. It was when he could finally be bound and his eyes were put out that he fully repented. See, us not being aware of our great need keeps us from returning to the great Savior in the greatest of ways. The storm comes and serves its purpose. In fact, we're going to find out that no matter how far they were from the Lord, in all four instances, He uses a storm to wake them up precisely because He wants to save them. See, you're going to hear some hundred-year-old preacher mess up and say to some reporter that God is punishing us because of... He'll use a politically incorrect term like queers... And that will be thrown all over the news. And the Christians will be those who think these storms are from God to punish us. And what we're missing is that throughout the scripture the storm comes to awaken us that God might 
save us. It has not so much to do with him wanting to destroy someone as saving someone. Oh man, do you want them to be saved? Do you care? Then we should praise God when we encounter things that are so far beyond our ability to cope. How about this one? Verse 17. Some became fools. That's Strong's number 191. E-W-I-Y-L. It means despising wisdom and morality. One commentator said a simpleton. Some become fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He saved them from their distress. He sent forth His word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Could we show that third slide? Their rebellion and iniquity had made them foolish and no amount of food or other things pleasing to the flesh helped them any longer. They were close to death. Man, being allowed to see that you're close to death is a blessing. It's a blessing because it allowed them to cry to the Lord in their distress and they were rescued from it. And what did He do? He sent His Word to heal them. You know what the cure for foolish behavior and sin and rebellion is? It's His Word. It's not tied soap. It's not a FEMA check. It's not the Red Cross, you know, keeping 97 cents, giving you a three-cent jambalaya. That's, that's not healing. What that actually is, is that's a humanitarian band-aid. It's putting a bullet wound on a dying soul and watching them die, but well-fed. It's silly. God put you in the position that you're in so that you could offer something that does heal. His Word. Why do we quote law, prophets, writings, Old and New Testament? Why do we carry stones in our pocket? Why do we pray throughout the day instead of just scheduled times? Why do we labor in the Lord and believe that faith produces obedience and that Christianity can be demonstrated because when the storm comes and the people cry out, He sends us to meet their needs and their needs are not that their house is flooded. The need's not that they've been deprived of a lazy boy. The need is not that they need their house sheetrocked. The need is they must consider the path that they're on and whether or not their life is glorifying God and being stripped of other things and made helpless is the first opportunity in life that they have to ask, Lord, are you pleased with me or not? Say, well, I know people that were evacuated and they're pleasing to God. Then it should have been a joy and a chance for them to witness to everybody in the shelter, right? They ought not see themselves as punished, right? You know, you put me in jail, you know what's going to happen? Prison ministry. You put me in a hospital, do you know what's going to happen? Hospital ministry. It doesn't matter where you drop me in the world because God's power for a changed way of life is inside of me and it goes everywhere I go. Let's take our next one. It gets even more beautiful. Verse 23. 
Others went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. Somebody say mighty waters. Their hunger for wealth caused them to venture out upon the seas. They saw the works of the Lord, His wonderful deeds in the deep. Now, your translation may say wonderful deeds. It might say His great wonders. All of them are positive. But look at what they are. For He spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. Are you hearing what's happened? The men have set out on the mighty waters to go make a profit for themselves. And God has sent a storm to turn them around. It's a little bit like the story of Jonah, huh? You could read the story of Jonah and decide that human beings give whales indigestion. Or you could find out that God will send something into your life to overwhelm you, to stop you, to totally wreck your way of life and get you to turn around and consider that He was speaking to you. And you weren't listening. See, it takes a little adversity to get our ear. Your relationship not going well, maybe God is trying to speak to you. Your business not going well, what is God saying? And let me ask you, how else could he get your attention? It's certainly not going to be from Pastor Colgate and his yacht handing out copies of your best life now. How else would he get your attention if it was not through adversity? I'd like to talk to you about this word, wit's end, for just a second. Is that okay? Wit's end. McGraw and Hill Dictionary of American Idioms says to be at your wit's end means at the limits of one's mental resources. Cambridge Dictionary of American Idioms says uh, to be at your wit's end means the limit of one's sanity or mental capacity, a point of desperation. What would it take to get you at your wit's end? Because when they get to their wit's end, look what happens. Verse 28. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and He guided them to their desired haven. God uses this kind of adversity to get our attention. He uses it as a homiletic to get the attention of your neighbor to show them that there's a difference between the way that you handle adversity and they do. He uses it to speak to the creation. Can we show that next slide? Merchants on the water, their courage failed and they were at their wits end. But when they cried to the Lord, He stilled the storm. The next slide. When you look at these four together, we have a people who lost their way. It was displayed in their hunger and thirst, their need. We have a people who rebelled against His counsel. And it showed up in hard labor, darkness, and chains. We have a people whose rebellion and iniquity had risen before the Lord. And so they loathed the food they ate and they were near death. 
We had a people who valued the greed of the merchants on the water beyond anything else. So he brought them to a place where their courage failed and they were at their wits end. In every case, he used tragedy. But look at what the advantage of the tragedy is. People find a straight way to the city they're supposed to settle in. They come out of the darkness and their chains are broken. They're rescued and God's word heals them. The storms of their life are stilled and they find safe haven. Are storms a bad thing? Who would you not want the right hand column to apply to? What if God is trying to get their attention? What if he's trying to get your attention? It occurred to us while we were looking at this. Let's leave that on the screen and turn to Ezekiel 34. I'm just going to read you one verse. I bet you'll get it right away. Ezekiel 34 in verse 16. <clears throat> I will search for the... What was the very first group in Psalm 107? They lost their way. And bring back the strays, the second group. They, could you advance to the next slide for me? They strayed by despising the counsel of the Lord. How about the third one here? I will bind up the injured. They were injured due to the rebellion and iniquity. So God sent his word and healed them. How about the fourth group? And strengthen the weak. In Psalm 107, they were weak and they were at their wit's end. And he strengthened them. Do you see that the very thing that God's shepherds are supposed to be doing, God himself does in Ezekiel 34. And he says he's going to raise up shepherds who will do it. The storm is your opportunity to do it. Let's go back and think about how we started today. What was I praising you for? Some new thing that you had learned? A way of life that you're already doing, but the storm allows people the opportunity to see that you were already doing it. I want to tell you that you're not in a precarious position. You're in a precious position. You understand God's working. So the flood is not a bad thing or an earthquake or a terrorist attack. Nothing that can happen to us is a bad thing. Do you know why? Because in all things, God will work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Nothing that can happen to a Christian. You take my life and it's a good thing. Do you know why? Unless a seed dies, it will not produce many others. But if it does, oh, come on, saints. What adversity is worth even mentioning when compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us? There is no complete formula for God, how God handles a storm. I want to just give you a few examples. In Mark 6, 47 through 52, Jesus watches his disciples straining at the oars. He does nothing about the storm. He actually seems to just observe how hard it is for him. After a long, long time, he walks to them on water, gets in the boat, and it stops. But they were already at wit's end from working against that storm for hours, third watch of the night. 
in Luke 8, 22 through 25, Jesus rebukes the storm. He puts an end to it with a word. Of course, the disciples were at their wit's end. They thought they were going to drown and die. And Jesus had been asleep in the bow of the boat. And they woke him frantic. In both cases, the text implies that the disciples were at their wit's end. And it's arguable that they learned a great deal from both experiences. Whether he stopped the storm or he just watched it, the result was the same in them. He was working to the same outcome. The end of their resources and the beginning of God's. Don't wait for the federal government to come and save you. What a ridiculous joke. I wouldn't give them the satisfaction. Don't wait for the Red Cross to come. Don't, don't do it. We are the church of Jesus Christ. A little water is, uh, you know, it's just going to cool us while we work. In Mark, they failed to learn the lesson of the loaves. What happens right before the storm is the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. And Mark mentions that they did not understand. You know when they understood? When they had to struggle against those oars all night and couldn't get anywhere. And then Jesus came walking to them and got in the boat and immediately they were on the other side. They understood something about the end of their resources being the beginning of God's resources. If you don't get to the end of yours, how do you get to the beginning of His? Storms are good for that. When you have nothing, you're forced to look at what you do have. Oh man. It's so easy to say all of my trust is in the Lord as long as you have all of the other stuff you want. But when it's stripped away, you find out whether the Lord is everything to you. I think it's funny that we could even feel persecuted. The truth is, after the storm has washed away everything you have, you still have more than the people I just left in Indonesia. In one day, you'll make more money. In one day, you will make more money than they do in two months. One day. Think on that for a minute. I've been to India nine times. And I have met women that were born on a tea plantation, die on a tea plantation, and have never in their life made more than a dollar in a day. And they work harder than anybody in this room. Tell me what we don't have. Come on, church. I'm preaching this message because you know it's true. I'm preaching it because you're not in a precarious position. You're in a precious position. When you meet people and they're at their wit's end, that's the chance for heavenly resources to come to them. What they don't know is their affluence has inoculated them from the gospel until now. And the fact that it's being stripped away is a chance to reach their hearts. Oh, no. Bad things are coming for Florida. No, saints, good things are coming for Florida. You just got to learn to see it through heaven's eyes. In Luke, they had been given a directive to go to the other side. The storm came. They panicked. They said, you know, Lord, we perish. Master, we perish. We perish. But when he rebuked the storm, they learned that no obstacle is too big for the man who trusts the Lord. I'm here to tell you, saints. The end of your resources is the beginning of heavens. No obstacle is too big for the man who trusts God. You know, Brent Vincent was told over and over and over and over, you're not going to get your kitas. It won't work this way. 
They approved one of his children and denied him. They approved his wife and him and a few of the children, but not the other children. They said that it could not be done. Don't submit. Don't. It, it's over. He submitted it anyway. In, in the next two days, he will have it for good. The kingdom is built upon the impossible. You know, the very idea that I'm standing here preaching to 45, 50 families and there are churches around the United States planted out of this one. And there are missionary works on five continents from this one. Do you know what the first thing that happened when we moved here was? We met pastors that said, go anywhere else. No church will work in Sugarland. This is the hardest ground we've ever seen. One of them gave up and became a realtor. pastorate had trained him to drive a pretty car and have a Photoshop picture on a card anyway. Maybe his church didn't work because it wasn't the kind of seed the Lord wanted to plant. We have enough of those. You know, if you could get good and full of the Holy Ghost and get spiritual iron in your soul, you look at adversity as an opportunity to show the world what you've been training for. And it's beautiful because they need it. They're waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Whether God stills the storm or he lets it rage on, he's still speaking. Do you consider your position precarious or precious? I showed you four things that the Lord did with your position. I want to show you a fifth that I think applies to almost every person in this room. Up till now, we've implied that something must be wrong and the Lord is correcting it and the storm gets your attention. But there is a fifth option. How many of you like the idea of a fifth option? It's a number of grace, isn't it? In Exodus 14, we'll illustrate it in two verses. How about that? Exodus 14, verse 3. If you think the sermon's getting long in the time zone I'm from, I'm just waking up. <laughs> to be at your wit's end is to be the, at the beginning of God's voice. Exodus 14, verse 3. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Let me get this straight. God says to Abraham 430 years in advance, your people are going to go into slavery. Oh, good, thank you, Lord, for that. He actually has to tell the patriarch Jacob, don't be scared to go to Egypt. Why do you think Jacob was scared to go to Egypt? Because to his grandfather, it had been said, your people are going to be enslaved there. You know, that's not where he wanted to vacation. And it happens. They turn on the Savior of the world and the people that produced him, and they become enslaved there. Now, after 400 years passes, those people are brought out of Egypt under the mighty hand of God. And where does he lead them? Onto a peninsula, hemmed in on three sides by water and one side by Pharaoh's army. And why does God say that he's doing it? Why did God put them in a precarious position? Because in fact it was a precious position. They got to show that they trusted God 
more than they trusted their own instincts, more than they trusted their own logic, more than they trusted their own need for safety, survival, comfort. And God himself stood between them and the enemy. And he gained glory through what those people endured and were still telling their story today. It might not be that you rebelled. It might not be that you forgot God's word. It might not be that you have iniquity piled up and he sent a storm to get your attention. It might be that he placed you in the storm's path so people would see God's glory shining out of you. By the way, it takes somebody full of the Holy Ghost fire and courage to look at someone who has just lost their belongings, look them in the eye and say, I love you. In fact, I'm going to give you the belongings that I have. But now's the time to take stock of your life. Have you put trust in the things that you have that are now washed away? Where are the friends in your motorcycle club? Where are the people in the church that you attend once a month? Where is all that you've put your trust in? It takes courage to do that. But if they can't hear it during a storm, they certainly are not going to hear it during fair weather. Church, maybe this is why you were put in the position that you were in. Can I give you one more scripture? Good, then I'll give you two or three, but we're going to start with this one. Nehemiah 9, 9, speaking about this event. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. Hear this verse. It's so important. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. Do you mean that in the midst of the storm, God will make a name for himself through your actions? God's name becomes known by the way that you handle adversity. I said it at the outset of the sermon. The gay, lesbian, and lovers of dolphins, birds, fish, and trees are not out there wading through waters helping grandma get to dry land. Who is out there doing it? People who are God-fearing and in love with Jesus Christ. See, this is the opportunity for there to be a distinction between those who love the Lord and those that love themselves. Maybe God put you in the position that you were in so that you can gain glory for the Lord and make a name for Him. Have you ever considered, there's two passages that we've not gotten to, two sections of the Bible. It's the New Testament prophets and it is the New Testament writing. Let me give them to you quickly for what you need to consider. In Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. How do you give Him glory? You give Him glory by performing out there what you've practiced in here. You give Him glory by showing that you are a bride and not a prostitute. 
You do not serve him for what you can get from him. You serve him because he is altogether lovely to you. So whether it shines or it rains, your behavior doesn't change. Whether or not it is favorable or unfavorable conditions, your love for him is steadfast because you are married to the king of kings and not some petty prince. They're giving you worldly pleasures. This allows the world to see who the body of Christ actually is. Oh, man, don't miss your opportunity to shine. How do you miss an opportunity like this? I can tell you, it's when you haven't been living like it before the opportunity. See, if you wait for the great day to display the great attributes of Christ, you will fail greatly. Because the great attributes of Christ are displayed every day in the smallest of ways. And on the great day, it's just what naturally flows out of you. I don't have to change the approach in any country that I've been in. I've been counseled by locals. I've been counseled by foreigners now residing in the United States. All the things that must change about me to be a minister in all the places we go. I lovingly smile and then defiantly go and be there exactly what I am here. And you know what happens in every case? Lives are changed and people are set free. Church, we don't need some new way. We don't need some scheme. We don't need some church planting gimmick. All we need to do is embrace the way of life that we've been taught every day. And what we will see is people saved everywhere we go. The fact that there are storms just gives them a reason to focus on what we're saying. Amen. Our last passage, and Matthew, you can come up here, is Roman, and I mean it this time when I say last passage, is Romans 8, and we'll begin in verse 18. Tell me when you're there. You know, when I walked into the church in Indonesia, the people began to yell in Indonesian, Api Baru, new fire, new fire. You know why? Because when I was there months ago, it was the last thing that Pastor Wade and I were preaching on. And they still remember it. And they're still putting it into practice. And they're still wringing every last bit of usefulness out of it that they can find. Don't wait till the word of God being preached to you as a rarity to find it precious. If you took the time to be here tonight, and for some of you I know it took a couple hours of commute. It took us more than two hours to go from George Bush to the house the other day. And you might as well take the opportunity to seriously consider not what the Lord is speaking to them out there, but what the Lord is speaking to you in here. We really have a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity here. All around us are military helicopters that cannot fix the people's problem. I'm told the Red Cross is everywhere. We've only seen one Red Cross truck. I don't know where they're all hiding. All around us, the nation will mobilize its efforts. And you have the one thing that will actually heal the people's hearts. Can I tell you Americans don't need new sofas? We don't need new flat screen TVs. 
we can live without the first 18 inches of sheetrock in our houses. They're dying for their lack of understanding of God's word. And what's keeping them from it is that they're rich in every way in this world. In every way except the one way that counts. They're poor for their need of God. This is an opportunity. Don't let it pass you by. Romans 8 verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's true that he's speaking of that day in the future, but I'm saying that glory can be revealed right now. The creation, the word for creation there is not the ball of dirt. It's every created thing, universe included. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Do you know how we're revealed, saints? By what we endure. It strips away the superfluous. And it leaves only that which was born of the Spirit of God. Hebrews describes it as a shaking of everything that can be shaken. So that all that remains is what cannot be shaken. Oh, this is such a good time. It's like a baby tremor before the big quake. It's a Braxton Hicks before the labor. If you think this is difficult, wait till we're talking tribulation. The sons of God are revealed. We're birthed right out of trouble. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Is there something that is keeping you from your glorious freedom tonight? When you walk through the doors tonight, were you smiling, full of the Holy Ghost, optimistic in every way, and asking the Lord to give you souls? Or did you walk in here with some devilish thought stealing your joy, something misdirecting you to the true need Instead of thinking about the next lost soul, your mind was on something that will not matter in 10,000 years. Did you come in here as a gloriously free son of God, ready to do His will, or does something have to change in your position? Have you viewed it as precarious? All that you have to do tomorrow, all the ways that your life has come, now there's 20 minutes added to my commute. My favorite Starbucks is closed. (laughs) Or do you see your position as precious and you cannot wait to share the hope to which you have been called and what the Lord is doing in you? You can't wait to go tell your neighbors, my house was flooded, your house was flooded too. And let me tell you why I'm happy. Does something need to change tonight? If he doesn't change your position, can you ask him to change your perspective? Come on. Yes. Why don't you stand to your feet?